0: A month ago this Sunday, I wasn't preaching on this stage. I was actually teaching the Bible in Capernaum in Israel. I think they've got a picture of that to show you. That's the Sea of Galilee behind me. I'm standing maybe 50 feet from the house where they believe um, that the Apostle Peter's mother-in-law would have lived. I'm less than 500 yards from the synagogue where Jesus would have taught. And I had an opportunity four weeks ago on Sunday to stand on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum and just teach the Bible and teach our people who were there... The unbelievable things that happened in the village of Capernaum. And I want to teach you one of those things today from the shore of the sea of galilee if you have your bible i want you to go to luke chapter 8 if you don't have a bible today our ushers have some that you can use they actually have one that you can have if you don't have a bible today but you'd like to have one so you can follow along um just raise your hand wave at our ushers they'll give you one if you don't have a bible or you don't know where yours is put your name in this one and keep it we've given away more than a thousand bibles since our church has begun um and we would love for you to have one so just keep this and read the rest of the book of luke sometime between now and christmas uh, and you'll learn a lot about jesus but we're in a series called a, a A season of hope. And in this Christmas season, we've been trying to help our church, the people in our church. We've been trying to learn from maybe other people in our life um, how to find hope, how to have hope, how to make sure we don't lose hope. And in Luke chapter 8, we see the conditions for finding hope. If you haven't already, take your sermon notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. But in Luke chapter 8, in verse 40, going through verse 48, we enter Capernaum, This ancient city you can still go to on the northeast shore, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is there, and Jesus has an interaction with somebody who's filled with hope. She's filled with trouble, but she's filled with hope, and hope overcomes. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came, and he fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, and she touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you, but Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You know, as we've been searching for hope this month as a church, we have reviewed a lot of things about hope. We've talked about what it looks like to lose hope from Proverbs thirteen twelve. We've taken some steps. We we know now how to take some steps towards regaining hope from the life of Elijah. Last week, we learned how to find hope from the scars in our story through Clayton King who was here. But today, we see the conditions necessary in life for us to step from where we are into a season of hope, into a lifetime of hope. And, you know, sometimes conditions for hope have to be just right for it to enter the scenario. I was in the back with our guys today, and we were talking about the rain. And I said, man, can you imagine if this was snow? Like, we would just be shut down if this were snow. I don't know if you looked at the radar, but it's like just green. Like, all of Kansas moving across Missouri is is green. And I said, man, if the conditions today were right for snow this would be a mess. We would be buried. Because the conditions where we live have to be just right in the upper atmosphere, lower atmosphere on the ground for snow to fall, for snow to accumulate. I don't know if you're like me. I'm a snow guy. I love snow. I love playing in the snow. I love snow days. I love snow skiing. Um, I I love snow sledding. So I've studied a little bit what conditions need to be right for snow to come. And hope is the same way. The conditions in your life have to be right. The conditions in your spirit have to be right if you're going to find hope. And hope is, is, come, is sometimes like snow. Unless all the conditions come together perfectly, it doesn't fall and hope doesn't stick. But we're hoping, because of what we learn in Luke chapter 8, that we can figure out how to make hope stick and how to make hope accumulate in our life. And we see that from Luke chapter 8. But I, I want to be honest with you. I've got three kind of points in today's message. The first one might be a little difficult. The first one might be a little hard. I I still, as I am preaching, I'm trying to figure out how much I'm going to say about point number one because it can be difficult. Because the first condition for finding hope that we see in Luke chapter 8 is sometimes you have to speak the hurt. Before you step into hope, sometimes you have to speak the hurt. Sometimes you just got to be honest and out loud about what is really going on that has stolen your hope. Look at Luke 8, verse 47. It says, The woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling, and she fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, I want you to underline or circle or highlight the words, all the people. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had instantly been healed. This woman who was on a journey to find hope, and she found hope through Jesus. Part of the conditions of her finding hope and experiencing hope were speaking the hurt, and it says in front of all the people. Now, what was her hurt? It was a humiliating hurt. It was a shameful hurt. It was a long-term hurt. It was a very personal hurt. The same kind of narrative is given in Mark chapter 5, and we go into a little more detail in Mark chapter 5 about what was going on. It said in Mark chapter 5, she'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She'd spent all the money she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And, and what was her condition to, to kind of bring it to the surface? She'd been bleeding for 12 years. You say, what do you mean? Basically, she had been on a 12-year menstrual cycle. That's what was going on. Something was wrong in her womb. And for 12 years, she had been bleeding. She'd been to every doctor. They could not help her. She had spent all of her money. They could not help her. She not only didn't get better, she didn't even stay the same. After all those procedures that they would have performed over 12 years, she actually grew a little bit worse. And what a a difficult thing to stand up in front of a crowd of people, some of them from your town that you know, some of them that you've never seen before, and just say, yeah, here's what's wrong with me. And here's what I've done. It's interesting that next to leprosy in the Old Testament era, this problem of bleeding was was one of the biggest deals and one of the most common conditions found in Israel. In the Talmud, which is kind of the rabbinic teachings that were oral tradition that were boiled down to writing, they actually had 11 specific cures that you could try if you had this problem or if you had something like leprosy that would keep you out of community with people. Um, everything from medical procedures to kind of folklore, one of the things was if you carry the feathers of an ostrich around for so long that maybe you would be healed. You can actually go and look at this stuff. And she, in the presence of everyone, tells people that the serious tries she made, the difficult tries she made, the humiliating tries she made, and says, here I am, I'm dirt broke, I've been hurting for 12 years. And in the presence of everyone, she just speaks the hurt. What an uncomfortable conversation to have in front of a group of people that maybe you don't even know. But the reality is, many times we have to open up about our hurt to find our hope. And some of you today, like you would like to have hope accumulate in your life. You'd like to have hope stick in your life. But you're not yet to the point where you can open up about your hurt. James 5.16 gives us an interesting verse that we can really misread spiritually. It says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Guess what? If you confess your sins to me, I don't get to decide whether or not you're forgiven. So it's not the sin part that begins to heal your soul. It's the confession part. James says, if you will open up about what is hurting you, if you will talk to other people about what's hurting you, if you will be aware of what's going on in life and let someone else be aware of what's going on in your life, and if you'll just care about each other and pray for each other, eventually you're going to be healed. Not because we have the power to heal each other, but something about speaking the hurt has a healing power to it. It's like an an ointment for our soul. And the very thing that begins to bring spiritual healing, speaking the hurt, just being honest and vulnerable, is almost taboo in our culture, which is really weird, right? Because we live in this culture that shares more things about their life than any culture who has ever lived before because of social media, but we only share the good. So we are a culture where everyone knows us about this much. They know everything, good thing going on in our life, in our kids' lives. Um, they, they know how well the games go when our kids win. You know, they're not sure what's going on when we lose. Um, you know, we, we are a culture that overshares in the positive. And, and at the same time, we're this culture that like values privacy so much that, that we're fighting for privacy laws. It's like, I want everyone to know everything about me until I don't. So how, how can I be in control of that? And the reality is, there's a portion of privacy that's that's smart, that's safe. Privacy can protect us. But do you know that secrets can kill us? When you're carrying around a hurt, when you're carrying around a wound that you've never opened up up about, not because of privacy, but because of secrecy, because of shame, because you're afraid of what people might think if they know what's going on inside of your hurt, I just got to keep that secret. Do you know that that's one of Satan's greatest tactics in Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis 1, we hear a creation story about a God who created the heavens and the earth. And then we meet a couple named Adam and Eve who rebel against God and, and they sin. And do you know that the first thing Adam and Eve wanted to do after they kind of rebelled, after they made a mistake, after they experienced failure, the first thing they wanted to do was hide that from everybody. They wanted to make sure that no one, including God, kind of knew about their mess up. That no one knew about their hurt. This says in Genesis 3, 7 and 8, that the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. The very first people who ever experienced failure, who ever experienced hope, who ever experienced disappointment, they tried to cover up what they did, and they they ran and they hid. And do you know that Satan wants us to cover up who we really are? Satan wants us to hide what's hurting us spiritually. And do you know that it's impossible for hope to stick in your life and accumulate in your life if you're never willing to speak the hurt? mean, this week we had a lot of people in our church that were hurting. We had a, a six-year-old nephew of a couple in our church who died of cancer this week. And we had a 95-year-old grandfather of Pastor Ryan in his family who died this week. So we this week were processing through the herd of a six-year-old who lost his life and a 95-year-old who lost his life. This week I got two separate emails from people who, who without any notice just lost their job up in like that in the month of December. And they're hurting. And, and both of them, it was weird, they sent me an email saying, you know, I don't normally share stuff like this, but I just, I felt like I needed to tell somebody. So be praying for us. And then I had something happen that has never happened to me before in 16 years of ministry. When it happened the first time, I thought, I, I did not see that coming. When it happened the second time yesterday morning, I thought, okay, Lord, do you, do you want me to share? Because, you know, I, I don't want to speak hurt for people. I don't want to open up old wounds. Yesterday, I, I checked my emails. It's been a long, busy season since, since Thanksgiving. So yesterday, I got up very early just to clean out my emails. I had 348 emails yesterday morning when I sat down to clean out everything that's come in since Thanksgiving. I've kind of reviewed and gone back and forth. but It's been very, very busy. So I'm scrolling through all these emails. And I get the second email of this week from a lady in our church who she and the other lady who emailed me, I'm not mentoring them, I'm not counseling them, I don't spend a lot of time with them, um, I don't think they even know each other. I had two separate women in our church send me emails this week wanting me to know that when they were teenagers, they had abortions and they've been processing through it for more than 20 years. And they just needed to finally, in this season in their life, begin to process and move through it. And it was like mind blowing. And, and, and what's really interesting, I told Danielle as we, as we discussed it a little bit, I said, you know, Danielle, I, I would assume in our congregation, and our generation, there's got to be dozens of people like that. I don't know if you saw the latest survey that came out, a very well-researched survey that MTV actually put out two weeks ago that said Christians have had more abortions than any other people of any other faith group because Christians are not supposed to do things wrong, so when they do, they cover it up or they get rid of it. Really interesting article. You need to go read that if you haven't seen that yet. But the ladies didn't tell me about what they were experiencing so that I would feel bad for them. They both said something like this. As we have slowly started to tell our husbands, a very small group of friends, and now you, every time I tell someone, I feel a little better. Every time I tell someone, I feel a little freer. I don't feel more condemned by speaking my hurt. I actually feel a little more free by speaking my hurt. In Luke chapter eight, we see someone who's moving towards hope. And one of the conditions for finding hope is, is speaking the hurt. Sometimes in front of people you don't even know and are comfortable with, uh, aren't comfortable with, but saying kind of, this is who I am. This is what I've been through and I need some healing. Sometimes we got to speak the hurt to find the hope. Secondly, after we're willing to speak the hope, we've got to make a bold move towards hope. This is what had to happen in Luke chapter 8. This woman had to make a bold move towards hope. Hope wasn't coming to her. It was near enough for her to get to, but it wasn't on its way to her house. So in Luke 8, 44, it says she came up behind Jesus and she touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding, this problem that had been going on for more than a decade, it stopped. Let me say something here as I just step into the narrative. Okay, just from a human perspective, not understanding the end of the chapter, just let me, let me step into the story on the streets of Capernaum that day. Let, let, me, let me be the 13th disciple hanging out with Jesus and understanding the scope of this whole day. And let me say this about this woman who made a bold move towards hope in Jesus. How dare her? I mean, how dare her? Did we already forget what Jesus was doing? Jesus was on his way to heal a little girl who was dying. He was walking from one place to another place, I assume very quickly, to get to the house of a little girl who was dying and needing, needed healing. Not just any little girl. The little girl of the Senegal ruler, one of the most respected, probably most influential, probably most impactful religious people in the city. A very important person that needed a very important task done. Jesus was on the way to go and heal this little girl. And how dare this woman... Try to kind of get in the middle of this and stop Jesus on his way to go do something so important for somebody so important That could possibly impact so many people so positively Yes, she didn't care She cut through Everything that anyone would be expecting of her or anybody else and said i've got to get to jesus You know, zacchaeus did this he climbed a tree The blind beggar did this. He screamed at Jesus even after people shut him up until Jesus stopped. The apostle Peter did this. He tried to walk on water to get to to Jesus. Do you know that sometimes it takes a bold move of faith to get to Jesus? Sometimes it takes breaking normal routine, sometimes it takes maybe looking foolish in the eyes of other people, sometimes nobody goes with you, sometimes it takes a bold move of faith to really lean in to Jesus and the bleeding woman did something that culturally and spiritually was totally out of bounds. Why? Because of her disease. What was her disease? Luke 8:43. It said there was a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Okay, big deal, no big deal, pretty big deal. She had a dire situation. Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 27 says this about her, her condition... And what was culturally acceptable for her? It says, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or if she has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as in uh, her bed during her monthly period. And anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash her clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. These clean and unclean laws were set up to allow people to have proximity to God or distance from God. And when you were unclean, you weren't allowed to go worship. When you were unclean, you weren't allowed to go to the tabernacle. When you were unclean, you weren't allowed to go to the synagogue. When you were unclean, you weren't allowed to volunteer at church. When you were unclean, you weren't allowed to go to small group. This woman would have been an outcast from society because everything she touched and anyone she touched would have for a week been kind of cut off from the rest of the religious community. And here she comes, busting through the crowd, ruining everything for everyone. I mean, as she's standing and telling this testimony, those who would have been very devoutly Jewish are thinking, man, did she bump into me? Did she bump into me? Am I out? Jesus could have been thinking, you just touched me, now I can't even go into the synagogue ruler's house. Because if I go into his house, he's going to be unclean and he can't leave the synagogue. What are we going to do, shut down the church for a week because of your selfishness? I mean, this was a big deal what she did. This was a bold move for an unclean woman to approach a holy rabbi and to touch him but she did she fought through the crowd and she touched him and her actions were out of bounds culturally but they were filled with hope spiritually she said i will not let the crowd get in my way i will not let my perception of a rabbi get in the way i will not let the restrictions of physical touch get in the way i'm not even really concerned about possibly making a rabbi unclean on his way to heal a girl who is dying because i have been dying for 12 years on the inside And I need some help because I need some hope. So she steps into the situation. And she was selfish because she was desperate. But she was bold because she had one last hope. And what her actions did spiritually and what her actions are going to tell us that she was seeking is that she was seeking something different from the crowd. And her faith, when you understand what she did and why she did it, her faith is going to blow your mind. Because the third condition we see for hope when we look at the life of this woman in Luke chapter 8 is you can't be content to live around Jesus. You have to live from Jesus. It can't be enough to just hang out around Jesus. You've got to live from Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 45 through 46. There are a lot of people around Jesus. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that the power has gone out from me. He, he said, who touched me? And Peter basically said, look around. Everyone is touching you. And we could look around this morning and say, Who's, who today is coming into contact with Jesus? We say, gosh, well, everybody, we're all at church. no. Not everyone around Jesus touches Jesus, according to Luke chapter 8. The hope of healing that Jesus offers, the hope that Jesus offers you, it doesn't occur by just being a spectator of Jesus' ministry. We don't read about anyone else that was healed of any ailment. We don't read of anyone else that had a testimony to give after they were done. We don't read about anyone else who experienced radical life transformation. Only the one in the crowd who stepped forward to touch Jesus And what would a spectator have seen that day? Those of you who have been to Israel with me, or you hang out with any Jewish friends or in any Jewish community, you're going to see this more than others. But a Jewish man today wears a prayer shawl. If you go to Israel today, you'll see them all over Israel. You can't see the shawl. They wear it underneath their clothes. But the shawl, off the four corners of the shawl, there are little strings that hang down that look like the tassels on a graduation hat. But a little thinner. And they'll be hanging from the front of of kind of their hips and they'll be hanging from the back of their hips. Those are called tallit. Those are their prayer bands. When you see them, when you touch them, do you feel them? They're supposed to remind you to pray. And almost every young Orthodox Jewish man in Israel wears them today. You see them all over the place. Jesus would have worn a prayer shawl that had tallit descending. That's what those things are called tallit descending from his hips. He would have, all of his disciples would have. They were very traditional Orthodox Jews. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament that tells people that God created them, the Old Testament that tells people that God knows them and He loves them, the Old Testament that tells people that God has a plan for people's life and is to forgive them and is to heal them and is to give them hope and is to give them eternity, the Old Testament talks about a person who will bring that hope. And in Malachi 4.2, speaking about the Messiah, it says this about him. To you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The word wings there is translated to lead. It basically says one day the Messiah is going to come and the little prayer tassels that hang off of him are going to have healing in them. They're going to have power in them. There's going to come a man who fulfills everything that God says is true of your life, that he created you, that he loves you, that he wants to forgive you, that he can heal you, that he is the source of life. And when that man comes, he's going to have healing attached to the little tassels that hang off of his garment. So everyone is there seeing Jesus, but she's looking at the tassel and saying, could it be him? Could he be the one who proves to me that God is real, that God created me, that God knows me, that God loves me, that God wants to heal me, that God wants to give me hope? Could he be the one? In Matthew nine twenty one, in this same narrative, it says, she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. These, this word she said to herself, it's more accurately presented because it's in an active sense. She kept saying to herself, if only, it's Jesus, if only I could touch him, if only I could touch him, if only God is real, if only the Old Testament is true, if only the messiah is real if only he will really heal me on her way to him she kept saying to herself it's like she had to convince herself that jesus could really heal her. maybe it'll happen maybe it'll happen so she keeps saying to herself and then she reaches out for the healing of the wings convinced not just that Jesus is the Messiah, but that God is the creator. That God knows her. That God loves her. That God has a plan for her life. That God has hope for her life. And she says, here goes nothing. And she reaches out. She's, it's not enough to look at Jesus. She's got to touch Jesus so that he can heal her. And when she grabs the wings of Jesus, she's healed. And Jesus stops and says, time out. Somebody here is different. Time out. It's like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. Time out, right? Who touched me? Peter said, everybody touched you. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Someone claimed the promise. I'm not asking who's bumping into me. I'm not asking who's rubbing shoulders with me. I'm saying, who here believes the promises of God and understands the scripture of God enough that they will crawl on their hands and knees to touch a prayer tassel because of an abstract prophecy in Malachi? And she says, it was me. She speaks her hurt. She makes this bold move of faith and she lives not around Jesus, but from Jesus. She kept saying to herself, if I can just connect with Jesus, 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 and boom, she grabbed his to lead his prayer tassel, his wings, and there was healing in those wings. Are you connected to Jesus or just around Jesus? Are you a spectator of Jesus or are you plugged into Jesus? Do you know where your cell phone cord is? Would you freak out if you lost it for a day? How would we even get up in the morning if our cell phone wasn't charged? How would we talk to anyone in our life? What would we do without the ability to connect to a power source? Man, if we would only be so serious about the power cord of Jesus, the tallit, the wing, the prayer cord, the power of Jesus in our life, that every night, every morning, we made sure to connect to it, what would happen? Man, what would happen? So scripture tells us there's some unbelievable, crucial connection points to Jesus that you can take. And as we enter this Christmas season, I'm going to encourage you to take these steps and to prepare to live these steps and live from Jesus as we enter the new year. You know the first crucial connection point to Jesus is baptism. Baptism. It's baptism by immersion, under the water, out of the water, sharing your story, maybe even speaking your hurt. This is who I was, and then I touched Jesus, and everything was healed. Have you been baptized yet? With 26 people last week that said yes to Jesus when Clayton King was here. A a baptism that connects you to Jesus is one that comes after you've become a Christian, and it's one that you say, I'm choosing to have because I want to share my story, it's going to be a bold move of faith. It's going to be something that maybe scares me to death. But if Jesus says that baptism is a step of connecting to Him, I'm in. For some of you, it's time. You've been waiting, some of you, seven days. Some of you have been waiting seven years. Some of you have been waiting a decade or more. It's time. Next Sunday, right after our 1045 service, we're having our Christmas baptisms. And it's time for you to get baptized. If you have not walked through this crucial connection point to Jesus, it's time for you to get baptized. So much so that I have inside your bulletin a card that says baptism. I'm convinced there's some people that need this crucial connection point at this point in their life. It's your first one. It's the first one that you have to pass through. It's the first step of obedience after you become a Christian of stepping more deeply into an intimate relationship with Jesus is baptism. If you're in here and you've not been baptized yet, Merry Christmas. Your gift to yourself is connecting to Jesus through baptism. Sharing your story. Maybe speaking a little bit of your hurt. So that you can show the healing that came from Jesus. If you've not been baptized, I'm going to ask you to fill this out. And when you leave the service, drop it by the next steps. Tables, tents, boxes. We've got all kinds of places where you can leave this. But don't celebrate another Christmas and New Year's knowing this is your next step. And holding back. It's not enough to be a spectator of Jesus. You've got to be connected to Jesus. The second thing is God's word. You can connect to Jesus through God's word. Our staff and all of our small group leaders have been going through this curriculum that our entire church will begin to teach people how to connect to Jesus 40 days In the word of God that starts at the end of January, it's unbelievable. You should hear the way our staff and our small group leaders are talking about the spiritual experiences they're having on a daily basis because they're connecting to Jesus through the word. It's unbelievable. Only one verse a day and people are saying, wow, I'm seeing the Bible like I've never seen it before in my life. So you're saying, I need hope. You need connection. You need to sign up for a small group and at the end of January when they kick off, you got to get in a group. And you've got to learn how to connect to Jesus through the word of God. Prayer is another way. Some of you have been baptized, you read God's word, but you only pray when things go wrong. And Jesus says, let's connect on a daily basis through prayer. Maybe one way is congregation. We we call it a church, but really you connect to God through a congregation, not a church. You don't connect to God through Journey Church International. That's just a name of an organization filed with the state of Missouri. You connect to God through people. And through people doing ministry to each other. It's really the congregation, not the church, that connects you to Jesus. And these connections don't bring salvation. They're not needed for you to be a Christian. But they are catalysts to connect us with Jesus. These, These crucial connections are all plugged into the power outlet of Almighty God. The God who created you. The God who knows you. The God who loves you. The God who wants to forgive you and heal you and give your hope. All of these, if you touch them, will be like the healing in the wings of Jesus. I promise you. But sometimes it takes a bold move of faith to get there. So let me ask you a question this morning as we end this service. Will you be content to watch Jesus from the crowd without experiencing all of his power for you? Content to just kind of come and watch? Or will you step out in bold hope and connect? It's interesting that we've got this number 12 twice in this story of Jesus because 12 is one of those numbers of perfection and completion in Scripture. 12 is a number of completion plus more in Scripture. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. We have a girl who's 12 years old who's sick and dying, who Jesus needs to come, who gets stopped by a woman who's had an ailment for 12 years, who's been sick and dying on the inside for 12 years. And then you have Jesus stepping in. Not only to bring completion and wholeness to these areas, but more. Because it's what Jesus does. Maybe Jesus has brought many things to your life, but I promise you, until you get baptized, until you begin to spend time in God's Word, until you develop prayer, until you get locked into a congregation, Jesus plus 12 equals like fullness, perfection, completeness, plus more. These people all took a bold step of faith. They were willing to open up about their past, about their life, about their hurt. They connected to Jesus rather than just watching him. And those conditions allowed hope to stick and to accumulate and be visible in their life. That's the type of hope that I want you to have. But you have to step into it. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?